Um, we're going to uh, turn now to Mark chapter 11. We're continuing our study through uh, the gospel of Mark. And so hear now the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you great thanks for your word that reveals to us the perfection of character in your son Jesus. And Lord, we see how great our sins are as we come into your presence and Yet, Lord, we are so drawn, so attracted to the perfection and beauty of character in our Savior, Jesus. And, Lord, not only do we long to be saved by his perfect character, but we long to be transformed, to be, become more like him. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would work now in accord with your word to form the humility of Christ in us. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our topic this morning from Mark chapter 11 is humility. We're talking about humility today. And I think uh, many people know that Christians think humility is a very important part of the Christian life. Uh, Christian authors throughout history have talked about how important uh, humility is, is uh, uh, in, in following Christ, and while most of us tend to like humble people when we meet them, those are probably his favorite people that we know is when we meet humble people, um, there is some ambivalence around humility and really whether it's a good thing in our culture right now. And uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was a, a German uh, philosopher, really hated the whole idea of Christian humility, and uh, he said that it was a way for weak people to get control of other people, you know, burdening their tender consciences. And so Christians are always insisting on everybody being humble because this is a way to kind of grab power and get control over people. And so in our day, uh, you know, for example, there's if you go online, there's lots of versions around masculinity that are being promoted in our culture. There's a huge need for it to be taught about gender in our culture, and so we're, men are powerful. And so there's this question: should uh, should we not be embarrassed? Should men not be embarrassed about their strength? Is it contrary 
to uh, masculinity to be humble? And I think it's the same question for women. Uh, women are facing this, this same question. Uh, you know, it, does a woman being a doormat or being humble make her into a doormat and she gets easily walked on? And so women say, you know, maybe I need to be more assertive. Maybe, I, maybe being humble actually hasn't been good for me in my life. This is a question a lot of people are asking is, is humility a good thing or is it a detrimental thing? And I think even the statement, God is humble. I'm curious what you think about that statement. God is humble. Um, does it not make you wonder a little? Does saying God is humble kind of emasculate God and take away his majesty and his authority? And uh, I have to admit, I, it gives a check in my spirit to just talk about the humility of God. Well, today we're going to look at Jesus as the model of humility. And, and basically what happens in this passage is Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He's been on this journey from Galilee with his, this whole crowd of disciples who are following him to the Passover feast. He's going to be crucified at the end of that week. He's entering into Jerusalem, and he enters in riding on a donkey. And uh, the reason he's riding on a donkey, is a donkey or a colt, there's some debate about what, what kind of animal, animal it is, is because he's fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah chapter uh, 9.9. We just read it during the assurance of pardon. And this is what Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus is displaying as the defining mark of the character of his kingdom, humility. And I think this passage is very helpful in us sorting out a biblical understanding of what humility really means. And so, um, uh, so this morning, I'm going to point out four aspects of biblical humility for us that we see in our Lord in this passage. And this is what they are, four, four marks of humility. That first, humility submits to the Word of God. Second, humility views ourselves with sober judgment. Third, humility rejects the fading glory of the world's riches. And fourth, humility sounds like praise. Four marks of humility. That humility submits to the word of God, views ourselves with sober judgment, rejects the fading glory of the world's riches, and lastly, sounds like praise. And I hope that you'll see that humility is not moping around saying, I'm good for nothing and I'm worthless. Uh, that is not humility. Humility has a resolve and a fortitude to it. Jesus is entering Jerusalem as uh, he's going to go debate the chief priests in the temples all week long. He's going to face the devil, and he's going to die for the sins of the world. Um, and so whatever understanding we have of humility, it better include the kind of courage that we see Jesus displaying in this passage. And so this is a helpful topic for us, especially in our day. So four points for us this morning on humility. And the first is this. Humility submits to the word of God. That's the most, you know, defining quality of a humble person 
is they submit themselves to the word of God. They are not God. God is God. And so he gets to speak the truth. And so you see here in verse 1 where it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. Now, if you've ever read through the Gospels or the Old Testament, uh, you might know that this verse is alluding to that prophecy from Zechariah 9 that, that I mentioned. It's especially that phrase there, on which no one, uh, uh, you know, a cult on which no one has ever sat. And that's what the, 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 uh, the Septuagint of, uh, of Zechariah says, is that this was a new foal. The new cult that someone, that never been ridden on that Jesus is going to be riding on. And so this story is like many others where Jesus understood himself to be fulfilling the prophecy, the promises of the Old Testament. And so Jesus saw the Old Testament. He saw the Bible as like a script. And it's like when the Bible says to do it, that's what I'm going to do. So, you know, Jesus is going to die on the cross. And he says as he's going to the cross, he quotes the Bible all the time. And he says, the Son of Man goes as it has been written of him. And he says in John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me. And so Jesus' posture is, when, if the Old Testament says that when the Messiah comes into Jerusalem, he's riding on a donkey, well, guess what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be riding on a donkey because I'm doing what God's Word says. And so Jesus has a supreme confidence in the goodness and truth of the Word of God. And so that's the first mark of humility that we see, that humility submits to God's word. Even Jesus, the king of the world, did that. Now, in our, our culture, we don't tend to think that way. You know, if someone says in our culture, you know, well, I believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God and that people need to submit to it whether they like it or not because it's the word of God and God knows better than you do. How would, would people view that statement as humble? I mean, many people would not view that as humble. They would say, well, that's really conceited. You're leaving a lot of people out who disagree with the Bible, and that seems pretty close-minded and judgmental of other people. That's pretty arrogant that you believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And you see how those are like two totally opposite definitions of what humility is, of how the world views humility and how the, the Bible and how Jesus views uh, humility. And so there is something counterintuitive to us here. And actually, I, I knew a pastor uh, uh, a while back who, you know, he was wanting to invite people into his church. And so he, he opened up a, uh, a time where he said, you know, I'm just going to invite people to come and just openly speak about the things that they don't like in the Bible, that they disagree with. And so people came. These are Christians. And so they would come and they would, people would say, yeah, I'd like to say, I think the God of the Bible is a tyrant and he's brutal. And this is a primitive religion that we really need to leave in the past. And the pastor's like, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's, no answer, no response. And many people would say he was being humble by doing that because he's, oh, I'm just welcoming all kinds of views. But that's not humble at all. The Bible, um, the Bible does not celebrate doubts. And so we live in a culture where we think being humble and open-minded means affirming what everyone believes. But actually, humility means submitting to the Word of God. Now, I'll tell you, in our church, 
I know there's a lot of people that have doubts. And you, you might be here this morning and you have doubts that you're wrestling with. I have, I've had doubts throughout my Christian life of scriptures I didn't understand. And the Bible says to be merciful to people who doubt, which means patient. It takes time to understand. There's a lot of questions to have answered in the Bible. And there is time here for that. But that's different than affirming doubts and celebrating doubts and saying, yeah, I'm going to hold on to my doubt. And actually, I believe my doubt more than I believe the Bible. And I would say, you know, as confusing as that is, I, I, my experience is there's really two different kinds of people. There's one kind of person who says they read the Bible and they come to something that makes, doesn't sit well with them. And they would say, well, that doesn't sit well with me. That can't be right. And then there's another person who reads the Bible, and they read the Bible, and it doesn't sit well with them. And they say, there must be something wrong with my thinking or my emotional response to this. And I need to get my thinking and my emotional response in line with what God's Word says. And you see those are two really different responses. And what Jesus is saying in, in how he lived his life is the second response is the humble one. The humble person submits to God's word. And we see in Jesus that spirit of confident submission to God's word more than anyone. Okay? So first, what's the first mark? Important mark of humility is submission to God's word. But humility is not just about how we view the Bible, but it's also about how we view ourselves and that's a second point that I want to point out from this passage. So first, humility submits to God's word. Second, humility views ourselves with sober judgment. Okay, humility is having a view of yourself with sober judgment. It's not, you know, thinking badly about yourself. It's thinking accurately about yourself, clearly about yourself. And so when you think about what Jesus is doing in this passage, so he's riding into Jerusalem on a humble donkey showing the humble nature of his kingdom. When you see what Jesus is doing here, would you say this is a humble act or a proud act? Riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. I mean, I think most of us would say, well, it seems like uh, a humble act, and I don't think you're wrong that it's a humble act. But Jesus is not saying when he's riding on the donkey, well, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm just a guy riding on a donkey. Don't take me too seriously. That's actually the exact opposite of what he's doing. This is a symbolic act that he is displaying for everyone in Jerusalem. And they, he wants them to understand, hey, this is Zechariah 9. It's happening right now. And so you see what happens in verse 3. It says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And, uh, and then told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, what's interesting in this verse, so Jesus is walking along with his disciples. He says, listen, you're going to go into this village. There's going to be a colt there. So he, like, supernaturally knows that there's this donkey in this town. And he's like, and you're going to take it, and then someone's going to come up to you. He's telling them the whole conversation before it happens. You say this, and then they're going to let you go. And, uh, and so what John Calvin says about this passage is that in this way, Jesus proves his divinity. He's showing his supernatural knowledge that he is God. And for, uh, for both to know absent matters and to bend the hearts of men to compliance belongs to God alone. 
So Calvin says Jesus is acting like God, and that's why he says those cryptic words. When you get the, the donkey, tell him the Lord has need of it. And he's basically saying, I'm the Lord, and I have need of it. And he's calling himself the Lord. And so in the middle of this humble act, Jesus still knows who he is. Humility doesn't mean that he says, well, you know, I don't want to blow my horn and kind of, I'm going to kind of play down the fact that I'm the God of the Old Testament. You know, that's not what he's doing. He knows who he is. Humility doesn't require you to just beat yourself down in the ground. It means having a sober judgment. And that's, that language of sober judgment comes from Romans 12, verse 3. This is what it says. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Humility views ourselves accurately with sober judgment. Jesus is acting with sober judgment in this passage. He knows who he is. He knows what his mission is. You know, Zechariah says, behold, your king is coming to you. He knows I'm the true king of the world. And I'm coming, and that's my mission, is to come here. Now, obviously, there are numerous ways that we can't draw parallels between Jesus and us. We're very different. Like, we're not God. He is God. We're not the true king of the world. He's the true king of the world. And so, in some ways, there are not parallels between what Jesus is doing and what we are doing. But the Bible does say that if we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a son of God. And it says that to the men and the women because we're all heirs. The sons are the heirs. The men and women are heirs together, and together we are the bride of Christ. We are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We are, have been chosen by God. We are the lights to the world. And having sober judgment is going to recognize that's who we are. We have a calling and mission. And so does humility downplay that reality of who we are in Christ? Absolutely not. Humility has sober judgment. Now, of course, our calling is to be servants. You know, uh, the disciples in this passage, Jesus tells them, go get the donkey. What do they do? They go get the donkey. They do what he says. They are his servants. And actually, Jesus in another place, I think it's in Luke, talks about in the final judgment when we stand before God and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. What are we going to say? We are unworthy servants just doing our duty. That's our joy in the kingdom is we are unworthy servants doing, that's, that's, sober judgment about who we are. We are unworthy of anything that God get, has given to us, but, and we are his servants just doing our duty. And so, and another component of sober judgment, of course, is the reality of, of sin that if we just think, you know, I'm a good person, I do good things, is that really sober judgment about my own character? The Bible says we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so sober judgment is going to say, I'm a servant. I've been saved by Christ. I'm a light of the world that's been filled with the Holy Spirit, all true, and I'm a sinner. And there's real sin that I have to be honest with that, about and confess and learn to confess because that's going to teach me humility when I confess my sins. All of these things play together to give us a sober judgment of who we are. That's what humility does. And so these two first two points really work together, that humility both submits to God's word. It's God's word that gives us the lens to help us to see ourselves accurately so that we can have a sober judgment of ourselves. But there's a third thing we learn about humility from our Lord in this passage. It's a little different than the first two. And the, and the third thing is that humility rejects the fading glory of the world's riches. 
Humility rejects the fading glory of the world's riches. And if you read about humility throughout church history, there's a lot of parallels between pride and possessions. And that's how we kind of feed our egos is with possessions. And humility is, uh, is letting go of the kind of vaporous nature of wealth and riches in the world. And uh, Jesus, and, and uh, you see here in verse 7 how it says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So there's Jesus sitting on a donkey. And, you know, why is riding on the colt or the donkey an act of humility? So if this is a symbolic act that Jesus is trying to send a message. He's trying to preach a sermon with this act. What's he trying to say? Well, I'm going to quote John Calvin again. This is what he says about this passage. He says, Christ will come poor or meek. Or in other words, that he will be unlike earthly kings, whose apparel is very magnificent and costly. Another mark of poverty is added that he will ride on, ride on an ass or the foal of an ass, for there can be no doubt that the manner of riding which belongs to the common people is contrasted with royal splendor. And so Calvin points out a couple things about this passage. He says, first of all, that humility does not hope in the riches of earthly kings. That's the difference between this king and the kings of the world. They have all this apparel. They have these big houses. They have all this gold and wealth that they're trying to uh, uh, bring together. And so Jesus choosing to ride into Jerusalem on a colt instead of a war horse shows he doesn't care about the wealth that accompanies the pride of earthly kings. Humility and seeing wealth as a fading glory go together. And I, I've been reading uh, recently uh, the rule of, of St. Augustine, or Augustine, and, uh, and it's interesting, the rule of St. Augustine was written for a convent. So here's Augustine writing to a group of women who had, you know, were living these lives devoted to serving the Lord. And so he writes to the superior, the women who are in charge, and how they're going to, you know, lead all these other women and then all the other women who, who are going to live in this house together and they're going to have this shared life. And when you get to the first chapter about life together, it talks about possessions and about learning humility and letting go of earthly wealth and possessions. And so there's a huge emphasis on contentment. These women who come and they, they give all their possessions to have all things in common and to learn to be content. Some of them were rich before they came into the convent. Some of them were poor when they came into the convent. But all of them, part of their humility is to learn contentment. And so our Lord is showing that. And that could be a question for us. How does money, wealth, and possessions keep us from humility before God and before others? might be a question for us to reflect on. So first, Calvin says in this passage, humility does not hope in the world's riches. But the second thing he notes is that humility is content to live like a common man. And he says, you know, the man, uh, Jesus has the manner of riding which belongs to common people. And I love that, to think of the true king of the world comes among us just as a common person. He's like one of us. And that's what leadership, true leadership always looks like, is true leadership, you have to be one of the people 
that you're leading, and you have to like see farther than them and be ahead of them. And Jesus, of, of all people, he's the high king of heaven. He's the son of God. He created all things, and all things were made for him. And yet, he comes down and takes on flesh and dwells among us, and he becomes one of us. And he's a carpenter, and he's born into a poor family, and he has nowhere to lay his head, and he experiences all the pains of human life. That that's what humility embraces is the lot of the common man and is content with that. And Jesus does that. And I think we all find that immensely attractive, this kind of humility in our Lord that submits to God's word, embraces God's call with a sober judgment, But with no love for the fading glory of earthly riches, he is a king who is one with the common people. And so I think this is also attractive, and it really leads to a fourth quality of humility that we see in this passage. Okay, so humility submits to God's word. Uh, Humility views ourselves with sober judgment. It it rejects kind of the fading glory of, of worldly wealth and riches. But the fourth thing is that humility sounds like praise. Humility sounds like praise. What do, we, what do we mean by that? But Well, you see, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem in this humble manner, what are the results? Verse 8, tell us. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming, of, uh, coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Now the word there, Hosanna, it means save us now. It's quoted from Psalm 118. And it, in Jesus' day, it become kind of like a word like hallelujah. It's like a word of praise. And it's how you praise God with hallelujahs and hosannas. And so if humility in Jesus looks like him just embracing his calling as king, humility in the people sounds like praise, praising Jesus. And so why is that? What is the relationship between humility and praise? Humility and praise. Praise is the way you enjoy and celebrate the goodness and greatness of others. That's what praise does. And so if you don't esteem yourself more highly than you ought, then you esteem others highly. And above all, you praise the one who is Jesus, uh, who is worthy of all praise, who is Christ. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis has a, a really incredible chapter on this in his little book, uh, the Reflections on the Psalms. And he has a chapter called A Word on Praising. And he talks about um, the trouble he had in the Bible where he said, you know, throughout the Bible, God is telling people to praise him. And I think people hear that and they say, why does God need so much praise? Is he insecure? You know, when you meet a person who's wanting everyone to praise them, you say, wow, you're so needy and weak. And why do you need all this? Is God that way? We don't like people who are demanding praise all the time. And what Lewis discovered is that the reason God wants praise from us is because praise is the sound of joy. You know, even if you have a good meal, you, know, you go out to a restaurant and you're like, this restaurant is so good. What do, you, what do you spend the next week doing? 
telling everyone, oh, I went to this new restaurant, you have to go there, and they have this one dish that's so good, and that food was so, or whoever cooked it for you, you're just saying, that is so good. Or someone is a great musician, and they play music that just moves you, and you just say, that, you want to tell them. You want to go up to them afterward and tell them how much it, it moved you. Or someone that you really care about, who's loved you, you want to praise them. That's what happens when you have pleasure, is you respond with, to pleasure with voicing praise. And that's why the deepest joy in life is coming to praise and worship our Creator. That is the deepest happiness. And, and Lewis makes this comment. Listen to how he ties together humility and praise. He said, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds. Capacious means like, you know, they can fit a lot of things in their brain. They, they're interested in all kinds of different things. That the most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. That is a profound statement. Lewis says the mark of a humble mind is praising often, and it is the sound of inner health when you are often praising. Praising other people, but above all, praising God. And, you know, it's been said that what you win people with is what you win them to. And how beautifully we see that in this passage. We see the humility of Christ, who lived his life in complete submission to the word of his Father, who embraced his calling as the true king of the world, who would enter into Jerusalem to be rejected by his people and hung on a cross. And actually, by the way, after the first service, uh, Tyson Smith mentioned to me that donkeys have a cross on, on their back. He showed me a picture of a donkey that Jesus was riding on this animal with a cross as he went in to bear the cross in our place. He rejected the fading glory of earthly riches, and he became a common man like us riding on a donkey. And when the people saw him, they forgot about themselves. They forgot about their own greatness, and their mouths were filled with praise. The sound of joy, the sound of inner health, his humility had won them to their own humility. And that's how the Christian life works. Ultimately, we don't become humble by trying to be humble. We become humble by fixing our eyes on Jesus and worshiping him. And when we do so, we don't become doormats who mope around saying, I'm good for nothing. Instead, the joy, the delight that we find in him fills us with fortitude and courage that we too might embrace our calling and take up our crosses and follow him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this story preserved for us about our Savior and his character to reject all the, the wealth and pride of the kings of the world who became a common man among us and yet was, was so clear on his mission and calling. And because he was submitted to your word, it, it gave him confidence and courage to enter Jerusalem to speak the truth, to bear our sins on the cross, knowing in the power of your resurrection. And so, Lord, we pray that the same kind of humility that we meet in our Lord would be the humility that you would clothe each one of us with that same humility, and that it would lead us to him, that you would fill our mouths 
with praise for our Savior, singing hosannas. It's in his name we pray. Amen.